the science behind CBD, overcoming the most common startup problems, and an inside look into what the future might look like. Welcome to episode 40 with the co-founder of Recover, Dan Hunt. You are listening to Len Jones' Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at TrueFace.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you're going to learn today. What up, what up, party people? It is a phenomenal day to have a damn good day. And if you're curious what the secret is to having an awesome day, I think I'm slowly uncovering the answer. As simple it may seem, it includes waking up and doing what you love by creating values for the world. The most incredible people that have accomplished so much did so by becoming fully engulfed in the excitement and like the euphoria of pushing forward towards a goal. And when we create values for others, we in turn feel valued and fulfilled, which brings us joy joy and happiness. And when we're full of joy and happiness, things like depression and pain have a hard time showing up to the party. And if you're new to the podcast, our mission here is twofold. To educate aspiring entrepreneurs by dissecting the come-up stories of incredible humans by extracting the golden nuggets that you can apply now to better your life. And second, to have all my friends in life that are making moves, to meet my other friends in life making moves, to create one giant community of extraordinary people. Now, I've been waiting a long time for this podcast with my friend Dan Hunt. I first met Dan years back through direct sales. Dan crushed it in his first two months, but quickly decided that the industry wasn't for him. After having gotten that entrepreneurial itch, Dan dropped out of school and became the COO and co-founder of the now public company Massroot, which allows you to discover the best cannabis strains and products with the help of 1 million enthusiasts on the platform. Now, I honestly think Dan Hunt is one of the most interesting people in the world that I've ever met. I mean, at just 19 years old, Dan raised $42 million for the company while going through a roller coaster of startup bliss and chaos. Dan has since left Masters and started a new company as the co-founder of Recover. Recover offers full-spectrum CBD paired with all organic ingredients that are used for mind, body, and sleep. I've had the luxury of traveling to multiple countries with Dan and I've picked his brain on a variety of topics. On this episode, we discuss lessons learned while raising money as both a public and private company, the Adderall epidemic in America, mental illness and how misunderstood it is, latencies in our school systems, science behind living longer in life extension, ways to improve your sleep, and the disgusting reality of the phone addiction epidemic. And for anyone that's listening to this podcast, Dan also is giving us $20 off any products on Recovered just by using the code LENJONES20. That's L-E-N-J-O-N-E-S. 20. Len Jones, party of two. So without further ado, let's jump into it. And we're live. Amazing. We're live with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Dan Hunt. How you doing, homie? I am super excited to be here. Dan, I've been to more countries with you than any other friend I've ever (laughs) met in my life. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's amazing. A lot of good times. And dude, we have a good history together. We do. I actually first met Dan Hunt through network marketing which is so interesting because it just goes to show that direct sales is an entry point for entrepreneurship. It gives people for the first time the ability to realize that they can make money for themselves, build their own business, build their own side hustle. And Dan is a great example of someone that took that, took that fire, took that motivation and went off and experimented in many different industries in, in life. And I remember a particular story when I went out to JMU and we started this thing. You see here the W-O-H. Oh, wow. You've got hidden materials that I didn't know about. 
Oh, WH. Yeah. Amazing. We out here. Yes, we out here. <laughs> and uh, I remember you got an email at that time and that email kind of changed your entire life. Do you want to talk about what that email was about? So I met, I was in, um, I was in this like entrepreneurial club in, in college um, and, and related to your first point, I got into that club because of my experience with, with direct um, marketing and, uh, you know, met a cool uh, a few cool kids, uh, one of them being a, a girl named Hyler Fortier. And she introduced me to the Masters team. They were super early on, um, convinced that the cannabis boom was was imminent and that there was a huge opportunity to create a community of, of cannabis enthusiasts to, to talk about um, products and strains and, and their different cannabis experiences. Uh, but they were just getting off the ground and, and I, you know, started helping them out and invested in, in the business at the time, um, using actually, you know, profits that I had made from, um, doing stuff with you guys. And, uh, yeah, the rest was history. Then, then I had, I had decided, I think you were, you were with me at JMU when I was making the decision to drop out. It was pretty crazy. Cause I witnessed you have this kind of come to moment where you were like, your whole life flashed before your eyes. Mm. And you're, I think you were a sophomore? Or you I were was a sophomore, yeah. But I actually, it's funny, I only went to school two semesters. Um, and I don't know if I should be sharing this, but I, uh, I actually pledged a fraternity my second semester of my freshman year, right? And I was pledging and I just stopped going to classes uh, because it was like, you know, I, I basically just went all in on, on like the social life of, of college. Um, and I think to me, like at the time, I, I really felt like that was the value of college. Um, I was in, you know, as a marketing major and, uh, business classes and, and undergraduate schools, you know, for the most part are, are, are not that useful. Um, and so I felt super disenfranchised by the material and, uh, stopped, just stopped going to classes. Um, and then at the end, I remember my parents were so pissed. And at the end, I actually went into uh, the, you know, health office and, and basically, and, and this was partially true, basically, you know, argued that I had a, um, you know, a mental breakdown. Uh, and that, that that was the reason that I didn't go to classes so that they didn't just take all of the the tuition that my parents were pissed that I had just like lost. And so then I took that semester off. I took the next semester off as well. And then I came back for one semester um, the idea was like, all right, I'm going to give this one more shot. Uh, and that's when I definitively decided that I was not going to continue college. And I was actually, before I had master's cross my plate, I was looking for, uh, you know, good opportunities that could provide. My whole thesis was, um, there are opportunities out there that I can learn more from than, than college. Um, and startups was, you know, sort of what I landed on. Um, and so when I was already thinking that and when master's sort of, came into the picture via the, the entrepreneurial club at JMU, it was an, it was sort of a no brainer to me. Um, you know, it was, and, and cannabis was particularly good opportunity because at the time it was so risky, uh, of an industry that the most talented people, uh, w weren't willing to get into the space, you know? So the, the, the talent density of the comp, the competition was very low, um, because there was so much risk and, uh, you know, being 19, I just didn't, I didn't care. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's crazy. You're 19 yeah. years old. Everyone, our whole lives, go to college, go to school, get a degree. Totally. You get this opportunity, comes into your email address. All of a sudden, you're like, holy crap. You go all in. You straight up put all the cards on the table. You're like, I'm going to go all in with this company. 
And next thing you know, you're out of school and you're building a business and then it took off. Yeah. So it, it did take off and we, uh, <laughs> we got timing incredibly right. Um, and you know, we were basically the problem we were solving is that people were not comfortable sharing their cannabis experiences on, on Instagram and Facebook, because at the time it was, you know, cannabis was still really stigmatized. Uh, it's, it's hard to remember this, but just over the last five years, um, the stigma has changed just dramatically. Um, you know, at the time when I, when I dropped out, it's changed a lot about college as well. But, um, when I dropped out and, you know, was going to go work in weed, as you can imagine, my extended family wasn't, uh, entirely pleased with, with that decision. Um, and, <laughs> Uh, my my nuclear family as well had definitely had some some um, worries, if you will. Um, anyway, so the the app, uh, you know, we got ten thousand users pretty quickly. We tapped into influencer marketing really early on. Real quick, can you explain yeah. what Massroots is? Oh, totally. So it is well. When we started, it was just basically an Instagram clone for for weed. Um, that's what we started with. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, literally, my co-founder who built the app. Uh, you know, it was the first app he had ever built. He like learned to code while he was building the app. Um, and it was terrible. I mean, really just as just really, really bad. Um, and it's funny cause like, you know, it was awful, but we had product market fit for sure. I mean, we originally got users. It was clear that people wanted a safe place to share their, their cannabis experiences. Um, and so it's just an Instagram clone for weed. And then it sort of evolved over time to do other things that, that were useful for, for, uh, cannabis enthusiasts. What was like the biggest kind of maybe, I don't know, breakthrough moment where you're like, okay, we got this app, we're making progress. People like this. And then maybe you start seeing die off and you're like, oh crap, what can we do? Was there like a major pivot you think that really took you guys from like here to here? There were a few key turns for sure. Um, so I think it kind of break it into chapters. There's our first chapter where we, you know, got the app on the app store and we basically just DM'd or I don't even know if we had DMs back there. We, we were messaging people on Instagram uh, I think we were DMing them, yeah, <laughs> and and uh, you know asking them to promote it. And we were lucky in that there was a real you know cause behind this. We were um, you know going to help cannabis legalization, and we did in a number of ways. Um, and people really got behind that. Uh, there was already a pre-existing community on Instagram that were willing to talk about cannabis. Um, and of course the people who weren't, you know, some of them were following those people and they, many, many of these guys, they would promote for free and, and, uh, it worked. And so we got our first 10,000 users and that was sort of uh, chapter one. Um, and then, uh, you know, we scaled that up, uh, just going really aggressive, um, on influencer, you know, marketing more than anything else. Um, that's really the channel that worked well for us. We also had, you know, content and played the SEO game and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, and then the next chapter sort of, we, we, we took a step back and, uh, in the beginning we didn't, we didn't do a good job of tracking all of our data. So it actually took a while to like learn what was happening. Um, and once we did finally get like the proper analytics tools in place, we learned that people were really following, falling off after six months. So we had like really great retention for like the first six to nine months. Uh, and then people would sort of slowly fall off after that. So it really wasn't sticking. Um, and that's because we didn't build enough utility into the application. Um, and I think that there's, I think with social networks, you see that, 
Um, a lot of apps do this really well where they start with utility and then build community. You sort of come for the utility, stay for the community, right? And that's what Instagram did. At first, it was just a photo editing tool. Um, and that, that, and we did the opposite, which was a mistake. We built a community and then tried to bring utility into it. And, and uh, that was difficult. And so when we figured that out, that there wasn't enough utility and users weren't seeing real value from it, that's when we started adding in other features to try to bring in that, that value. And the first thing that we did was product and, and strain reviews, which was... In retrospect, super obvious um, as the thing to do, but at the time, you know, there were a lot of different options and directions that we could go, and that seemed to be where the most opportunity is because cannabis is so intimidating and and the selection and complexity of of products. Um, so we wanted to have our enthusiasts review their different products. These are you know many of the world's experts were on the platform, um, and help you know regular consumers navigate different cannabis products. You go into a dispensary and it's crazy, right? You got, it's unlike wine or, um, you know, where you've got a few different, you've got different grapes, but it's all, it's all alcohol. It all makes you feel the same. We've got tinctures and edibles and patches and, you know, joints with keef on them. And I mean, it's just all over the place, right? Um, so that was the problem we tried to solve as our, as our sort of evolution. I wouldn't call it a pivot as an evolution of the of the app. Yeah. Um, the the in, whole industry has changed dramatically just yeah. in the past two years. Crazy. But one thing that I thought was very unique was at one point, the I, uh, the app store kicked you off of iTunes, correct? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, we have a few kind of funny stories like that. So the Apple just you know removed our app one day. And at this point, we're probably driving like 3,000 downloads a day. Um, so like our growth machine was turned on, we had unlocked a few paid channels that were working really well and we just get completely removed. Um, and so as you can imagine, we are freaking out. Um, and, uh, Apple is a black box. You know, we didn't have a person there. Uh, there was no, it was just no way to, to, to really communicate with them on a meaningful level about, um, about apps. And if you go and research this, it's really funny. There's, there's like this one app reviewer at, uh, at Apple, they call him like, I don't know, let's say they call him Dave or whatever. Um, but it's really a bunch of different people, but they just call him Dave. And, uh, there's a whole website online somewhere that's like talks about all the crazy experiences that apps have, like trying to get their app in or, or, uh, back. And so we decided to, uh, orchestrated campaign. This was mostly Isaac, our CEO, actually. It was his brilliance. Um, we did a full-fledged campaign to try to get uh, back onto the App Store. And what we did was uh, pushed our users to send uh, letters to Apple and emails. And we sent about 30,000 of them. Wow. Um, to That's that Apple. community work. Uh, yeah, totally. And uh, which is crazy, and it really was because it wasn't about mass roots. It was about cannabis. Right? What do you What do you think um, made them love and feel attached to mass roots? That would make them go out of their way to send an email and take that time. Yeah, totally. It was the community and and the cause. You know, the the legalization cause um, was. It really wasn't about mass roots. It really was bigger than that. It was about cannabis, and and we positioned it as you know, Apple's not being progressive, um, and they're a progressive company, um, and so. You know, one day we uh, finally got back in and it worked and they actually changed their policies, uh, like literally changed their their verbiage in their their app store policies because of that uh, campaign. Um, so we still never actually had a meaningful conversation with them. Um, but one day they finally let us in. Would you say throughout your journey building this with Isaac and your team 
you started off with a pretty small team. You grew pretty fast. Yeah. Do you think that you just kind of figured it out as you go? Is it just kind of like you make an assumption, you test it, you experiment? Do you think that you've created a system now that is pretty duplicatable to eventually get to where you want to be in terms of business process? Like mm. you always talk about making assumptions, testing those assumptions, making mm-hmm. hypotheses. You sure. really think about it as a study. Mm-hmm. And if you follow the study, eventually you're going to get there and you do it better than anyone I've ever met. Mm-hmm. When did that kind of like, when did you start implementing that mm-hmm. theory into your business mm-hmm. and, and look at your business as a giant? Yeah, it was study? really start. It started not at the level of the business, but just in terms of um, user acquisition. So the, uh, you know, the best growth teams in the world run on the scientific method. Um, and they uh, create a big backlog of different experiments that you want to run, things that you think might work to drive user acquisition. The ultimate goal being to drive down uh, the price of, um, you know, your customer acquisition cost and to uh, build a system that is repeatable uh, and scalable, um, you know, to, to, to scale those that acquisition. And so we built a growth team at Massroots, uh, you know, where we had this process where we'd come together every week and we would brainstorm ideas for how we can, you know, grow uh, and acquire new customers, different things that we wanted to do in influencer marketing or um, the articles that we wanted to write or, um, you know, the, the ad copy for the Twitter ad that we we're running, whatever, right? And so we just brainstorm new ideas. And um, then we would organize them and hypothesize what, what is the you know, cost of this experiment going to be in terms of design hours, implementation hours, um, you know, uh, and, and also what the cost will be you know, uh, for the ad that we're, we're running um, and what we think that it'll drive in terms of uh, customer acquisition. And so that became, made it really easy to just prioritize what, what experiments we're going to run. Um, and then afterwards, uh, I kind of fell in love with this process just off of the the sort of philosophy that no matter what happens, uh, you win. Because if you set up an experiment correctly, you either succeed and, and repeat that experiment, you know, as a, as a way to acquire customers, um, or you learn something. Um, you know, if, because you ran that experiment, you were running it on an assumption, and if the experiment fails, that means your assumption was wrong. And so now you, you better understand your channels. Um, and uh, I think it was like a video that I, when I was building Masters Growth Team, it was like Brian Balfour at, at, was the VP of growth at HubSpot, did like a video on how to run this process. Um, and uh, we, we did growth extremely well at, at Masters, I think. Um, we unlocked a lot of first channels. Like I remember we, we did this Twitter campaign um, that was like someone passing a joint through a phone. So it was like a community um, you know, uh, but through the phone and this piece of creative, like performed like unbelievably well because no one had advertised on cannabis on Twitter before. So like you're, tr- you're scrolling through Twitter and all of a sudden there's a huge joint in your face. Uh, we were able to really capture people's attention and drive downloads <laughs> with that. Um, so we were just, and what we learned over the long term was that ultimately, uh, it's the velocity of uh, experimentation that wins. It's, it's so people are so often wrong about what they think. Um, and, and this shows you that this process dependably shows you that, uh, and you don't waste time arguing over stuff like, like, you know, founders waste so much time just arguing about what they think pontificating. Um, and the quicker you can go from what you think to 
you know, actual tire to the ground and see what reality is, um, the better. And that's what we found. And so in that way, your original question was sort of like, is this a dependable sort of system uh, for growth? Absolutely. Um, it's just a matter of, of implementation time. And I think today on the best, I think that's probably the key distinguisher of the best growth teams are that they're incredibly fast at implementation. Are there specific tools that you like to use that yeah, do a I've, good job? I'm obsessed. This? I am. I'm so glad you asked that because I am obsessed with Airtable. Um, so Airtable is a database. Uh, it's just a relational database um, that is super easy to manipulate. It looks like a spreadsheet, um, but it, it, it's different in that you can link to records and other tables. Um, you, you'd have to go and play with it. It's, it's, I don't know how else to explain it. But um, you, I use that to track everything. In, not only in my business, uh, which is not Massroots, to be clear. We'll get into that in a minute. But uh, also in my personal life. Um, so I have like my own personal, um, sort of like content CRM, uh, and it's run through Airtable, Um, and so I've got data points on everyone in my network and like what their expertise is and, and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's easy to, to find people quickly when I have a problem. Um, Airtable is amazing. You just have to go check it out. Yeah. I want to check it out. Yeah. I really want to get into what you're working on now. There's a lot of exciting stuff, but before I get into that, one thing that I've always found very intriguing and impressive about your story with Massroots and your whole team and your growth was you guys raised a lot of money. Yeah, we did. 40 million. You raised 40 million. Yeah, we were, you know, um, how old were you? Well, when we started, I was 19. Um, that's 40 million over the course of several years. Um, Massroots is super unique in that we went public very early. And so what happened is, uh, at the time, this is 2013, uh, it was incredibly hard to get capital from institutions, uh, private, you know, VC firms, because a lot of them had bylaws. This has changed now, but a lot of them had bylaws that were like vice clauses that didn't allow the firms to invest in businesses like cannabis. It was also much less clear then than it is today that whether or not cannabis would make it, um, you know, continue to be legal, be legalized and states continue to fall. Now it's very clear that, you know, the trains left the station and it's never coming back. Um, so these, so these institutions wouldn't touch us. And as a consumer, um, you know, product, we really needed, we really needed capital to grow. Um, and you know, we definitely made some mistakes here, but we grew, we wanted to grow really aggressively and we, tr we, we grew too fast in some ways for sure. And that's one of the most common mistakes of startups, I think. Um, but, uh, in order to get that capital, we, we took the company public because we knew that there was, you know, while there wasn't, we weren't able to get the private money. We knew that there was a ton of demand in the public markets for cannabis stocks. Um, and so it was a way for us to, to raise more money. And that was, you know, one of the most difficult things about Massroots was that we were both a startup and a publicly traded company. <laughs> and those two things are so at odds <laughs> in terms of, you know, how you operate. Um, you know, when you're a public business, you're, you're very, um, you have a lot of pressure on you to, to report, um, good earnings every quarter. It's very short term thinking, um, and when you're a startup, you, you know, you really want, you're, you're thinking much longer term, big vision, whatnot. Um, and being a public company is also incredibly distracting and expensive. Uh, you know, like the lawyer fees are really expensive. And, um, 
the uh, you know the nature of the stock being able to be traded and sold by our employees was was very uh, you know tough to figure out how, like how to how to deal de- deal with that correctly. Um, you know, because when the stock did really well, we, you know, we had employees who were making a ton of money. Um, and that's like an interesting dynamic where usually in a startup, like you don't make money until, you know, you sell the business or take it public in 10 years um, or whatever. Um, so there was a lot of really interesting parts of that um, experience. But yeah, we took the company public and we raised we raised $40 million and that was, um, you know, all just to, f- to fuel this growth. So, so take it back. What's that like? You're 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. You're at the front raising a ton of money and all of a sudden you're rubbing shoulders with these VCs and all these influential people. What was that experience like for you just at that age? Like, were you completely confident the entire time? Were you just like... I was delusionally confident. Really? Totally. Almost too confident, you think? Yes. I mean, I had no... One of the things that's incredible about being naive, I was incredibly naive. I just had no idea how the world worked. I still don't, of course, but, but I do a lot better today than I did then. And uh, I was so naive, and, and uh, the superpower of being naive is that you can just have delusional confidence. Uh, you know what I mean? You don't understand at that point how hard it is to actually build a business yet. You don't know that. So, um, you know, I was very confident that we were going to succeed, and, and, um, and uh, you know, that helped us raise money. Like, investors love, you know, a founder who has conviction, um, that's a key part of being a good founder. Was there a certain element that you thought helped you a lot? Was it the story you were telling? Was it how you as it pertains it? to raising money? As it pertains to raising money? Yeah, I think um, I love this quote: "Stories sell better than spreadsheets," uh, and that's absolutely true. Like our world runs on stories, and we had a really good story. Um, you know, being uniting the cannabis community. Um, the the problem with cannabis products and strains being confusing and complex. Um, we had great stories for sure. Uh, we're also in the right time at the right place, frankly. Um, you know, I don't know that a a huge part of this was just timing and that's, that's the case with a lot of businesses, you know, it's just, uh, being the right time, right place. Um, and so we were very lucky, frankly. Um, but you're, but you're learning a lot. You're like out, like you're just a young kid figuring this thing out. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you know, you have a blueprint, sort of, but you're like, okay, I need to call X amount of people. I need to get to X amount. And people are like, wow, these kids are amazing. Yeah. Um, well, we did have a few. We had a few. Um, we did some fundraising where we, like, had an investment bank. Um, and so, you know, fundraising on the public markets is entirely different than, than fundraising for a startup. And so um, learning that world was fascinating for sure. You know, just the games that are played on on with with public companies and the ways that you raise money is is definitely interesting. I, it's been so long since I've really thought about that. I don't know that I could uh, conjure up the the insights, if you will. Yeah, that, that's um, one thing that I've always just admired about you is your personality and uh-huh. how you sort of just go all in with whatever you're thinking. Yeah, sometimes. Good, sometimes bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I have been told that I'm very all or nothing. Very all or nothing. Yeah. But like when you get an idea, you just think, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. I remember one time I was in your room, I think you're 18, and you have like 500 tabs open on your laptop. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I think I have this condition. It's called something. What was that condition you thought you had? 
I don't remember. I don't know. Something yeah. that, I don't know, some sort of mental thing that you need to have a thousand things happening at once in yeah. order to like operate and feel like. Yeah, I was diagnosed with ADHD early on in my life. Man, me- mental health is a, uh, and I've, I've definitely struggled with, I, I don't know, I've never had an actual diagnosis, but I'm probably bipolar. Um, Do you think being you know, bipolar can play to your advantage in certain ways? Totally. Um, there's, I know a number of founders who are, you know, hypermanic. Um, so it's a spectrum, right? From depression to mania. That's what and, I meant. Hypermanic is what uh, I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, hyper, hypermania is, um, you know, so a manic episode is sort of usually classified by like, and I am not an expert here at all, to be clear. <laughs> uh, so I, I believe it's, you know, you know, you really are delusional, like crazy, crazy delusional, you know, manic episode, like you're running across the street naked, you know, and think that you're God and that, you know, really, really crazy stuff. And, um, hypermania is sort of just before that. Um, but I think we, you know, the brain is so complex. I don't, I don't think we really understand this stuff at all. Um, and, and classifying people's brains with these words, I think is dangerous. Um, because every brain is unique and complex, and I don't, I don't think it's as simple as, as uh, we we currently believe it to be in the medical community. But again, I'm not an expert there at all. But yeah, I think that some people's, especially with bipolar, some people's bipolar uh, is a is a superpower and a, um, curse. And, a and a curse. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's cool that you mention it because there's so much stimulation, uh, si- simulation based on people that are labeled as these things and they are put into this category that they can't perform right i think everyone in our generation has adhd to some level yes i don't know it's funny like how many this is you know one of the problems of the pharmaceutical industry and this whole thing that i don't i don't even want to get into really but um it's so easy to get an adderall prescription oh my god um, yeah. so everyone thinks they're idiot you know pe- people are you just want a study drug in college and then say whatever you need to on the survey, you know. Um, I, I don't know how many people think that critically about their ADHD. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think you just get, most people are just looking for Adderall. I had a really good buddy that, uh, super intelligent human, you know who this is, but I'm just going to not leave his name out for whatever reason. But he got super addicted to Adderall for like an entire year, just like almost every day. Yeah, it's terrible. Was like snorting it, doing it, like every aspect of it. And he would just work, work, work 24 seven. But he's like, he became a different person. It literally changed totally. him as a human. And he almost feels like he can never get that person back almost. Oh man. And that's a terrible feeling. I've, I've so I took Adderall from, um, or not just Adderall. I actually experimented, you know, I had a, uh, experimented with many different um, ADHD. I was really bad in, in like kindergarten, like, you know, like just like a terrible troublemaker and like all over the place. Stuff, like yeah. It was just like, I was terrible. And so, um, that's what prompted it. Right. And I think I started taking it in like first grade or whatever. Um, and I hope my mom doesn't hear this because she's super guilty about it. <laughs> uh, cause we just didn't, you know, she just didn't really know, but I took it until high school and then I stopped I stopped taking it in high school and I basically just decided I had the same feeling where when I took Adderall, I didn't feel uh, like a human being. I felt like it, you know, it really dampened my emotions and senses. Um, and I didn't want to be taking something that changed who I was. And I, I came to the realization that I needed to learn how to manage that myself in, in my own way. Um, and I'm you know, still trying to do that. Um, and it goes beyond just... ADHD, just, right. you know, manage the, the nature of my, 
mind. Um, yeah, I don't think I've, I've taken, I haven't taken Adderall since college. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only way I could write like a 15 page paper was if I took an Adderall <laughs> straight up. Right. Like a little small amount, but enough was to keep the Jones like just ripping. You just, yeah. you're a machine, you know, you're so much more effective, but it is crazy how that all, that all is going down. But to segue into some of the current stuff you're working on. Sure. Now, there's so much I want to pick your brain on when it comes to finance, when it comes okay. to how you think your philosophies. I know you're really big into stoicism, mm-hmm. and but I do want to get into Recover because sure. this is new. This is a new venture. Uh, one of the co-founders of Recover. Give us the story of what Recover is all about and what are you guys are looking to do with this thing. Totally. So as you're probably well aware, and many are, there's there's been a, uh, a huge... Um, uh, huge market growth in CBD uh, oil, and uh, you know we've been very close to that. Um, you know, watching that very closely for several years now. It's a miracle what um, some CBD products are doing for people when it comes to anxiety, stress, mental fatigue, pain, and inflammation. And we'll get into more specifics here in a second. Um, and uh, you know, we we I've used cannabis for sleep for a long time. Um, that's another one that, that's huge for people. Uh, but there's a lot of problems on, on the marketplace um, and really low quality products. Um, so that was the, the start of, of Recover was that uh, we, you know, I think this is six to 12, well, several years ago, we, we uh, became part of this farm uh, so we have a farm in South Carolina, in Conway, um, and uh, the farm originally was uh, focused on a, a product just for children with, with epilepsy, um, and so CBD oil has, has done incredible things for, for kids that, that struggle with epilepsy, um, and in that process, we, uh, we developed um, basically proprietary extraction methodologies of, of CBD oil that, that is r- incredibly high quality. So basically, here's a different, let me back up. There's, there's a bunch of different details here. Um, so the short answer is that we, we are starting a business that has three different products for mind, body, and sleep that are specifically designed with CBD oil to help people recover from the stressors of, of life. And that's everything from pain and inflammation to mental stressors as well. Um, to, you know, arguably the most important recovery occasion in our lives is, is sleep. And we're doing this because we've basically figured out this extraction methodology that keeps a super high level of phytocannabinoids in the CBD oil. And a lot of the products that you see on the market right now are actually isolates. And that means that they just isolate the CBD. It doesn't get what's called the, the entourage effect, which is when CBD and CBN and CBG and all the other cannabinoids that are in the plant interact with each other in, in meaningful ways and support the endocannabinoid system in your body. We have a you know much larger vision than that. Um, we're starting with CBD because we were close to it, but we think that there's a huge opportunity in the supplement space to just make much, much better products that help people. And the notion actually started with um, longevity. So I did like a bunch of research into longevity. I'm super interested in longevity in uh, the sense of living longer lives. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, you know, I became obsessed with the idea of of uh, not dying for a little while wow. uh, when I was in college and went down that rabbit hole. And then again, more recently, and one of the things that's most interesting to me about longevity research 
Um, and we're very early on, like, you know, relatively speaking, we just recently started thinking about like that this is even a possibility that we could, you know, perhaps extend our lives by 50 or a uh, hundred years. Um, there's real money going into that goal now where there, that wasn't really the case even, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago. I don't have the exact an numbers. Thought. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's really, it's, it's really just like, I think it's only five things that account for like 80% of deaths after you're 50 or whatever. Um, and it's like heart attack, stroke, Alzheimer's, cancer, and heart disease. I'm pretty sure um, you could Google that. But, you know, so our longevity research is, is, is figuring out how to prevent those things from happening, right? And that's the key strategy of, of living a longer life. And one of the things that we're finding uh, or, or that they're finding is that a key component of longevity is building what's called homeostatic capacity, uh, which is basically your ability to bounce back from external stressors and maintain a state of homeostasis in your body, right? And so this is fascinating to me. It's why people, I don't know if you've heard of Wim Hof, mm -hmm. um, but people are jumping in frozen lakes and bath. taking ice baths uh, because it's a stressor that helps make your body stronger um, and able to uh, basically return to homeostasis uh, faster. That's the theory anyways, to, to the extent that that's proven, I'm not sure. You took one um, of his courses, didn't you? I uh, did like a, not not a full course. It was just a day with him at the summit conference like a few years ago in L.A. He climbed. Uh, is it Mount Everest in his boxers or something? Like something that? along those lines. Yeah, <laughs> he is. You should check him out. He is a crazy man. That's and, nuts. you know, he does a number of this is a segue, but he does a number of, you know, breathing exercises in addition to the the cold exposure. Um, but this is becoming very popular. It's the reason that people do, uh, that some people do like infrared saunas as well and a number of other things. And this guy who, is, who I learned from this about, he actually like eats incredibly healthy for 30 days or, or, you know, but then he'll allow himself to have like garbage because he wants his body to be able to handle it, to build that homeostatic capacity. Um, and so that's a simplified version of what a topic that's way above my head, but I became super interested in this. And what's fascinating about cannabis is that there's this relationship with the cannabis and all the phytocannabinoids that are in the plant and our endocannabinoid system. Uh, and only fairly recently have we learned of the endocannabinoid system's importance in regulating homeostasis in the body. Right. So this is a winded way of saying that um, cannabis is sort of this miracle in supporting your endocannabinoid system and your endocannabinoid system is incredibly important in maintaining homeostasis and being able to be in homeostasis is what allows your body to heal from external stressors. Could staying in homeostasis for an extended period of time be a direct correlation to lowering your possibility of dying? And yeah, that's the, that's the notion. That's basically the theory or the hypothesis. And, and there's very early on in, in studying this, but it looks very promising that that might be the case. And so our company hasn't have anything to do with longevity, but this is sort of how mm -hmm. this became interesting you, yeah. to me. And so we're, we're, the business is called Recover because we, we believe philosophically that the important thing to do from a health and wellness perspective is to be really mindful of the stressors that are in your life and to recover from them. Um, and health and wellness is growing so quickly. People are taking so much better care, care of their bodies today than they ever have before, which is fantastic. But it's incredibly hard for a consumer to navigate. 
it's so confusing, like what, what to believe as it pertains to what to eat and how to be healthy. There's not very many things that are clear. A few of them are really clear, like processed foods are bad for you. Right. Sugar's bad for you. Terrible. You should exercise. For sure. Um, you should get sunlight. Absolutely. Um, but beyond that, there's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of studies that are kind of inconclusive. And we're building a line of, of use case specific products that are both effective and healthy. And so you have like these, these performance supplements that are effective, like pre-workouts, for example, right? Like you feel them, they're effective. They're not placebos, but they're filled with garbage. You look at the ingredients list and there's like a hundred Mm. ingredients and there's just so much garbage in there and that's like a clear wave that's happening in the world right now the world is shifting to a healthier lifestyle total groves totally um and people just aren't going to buy those i think gnc you know you walk into a gnc today and it's like what is going on in here i mean it's just so many of these these ingredients lists that have hundreds of chemicals and are terrible for you um and so we, but, but on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you sort of have self-care and to the extent of, of like your, you know, your spa and whatnot that is sort of useful, but less sort of specific in, in what it's doing for you. So we're, we're building a line of supplements that are, that are for specific use cases. And we're starting with uh, mind, body, and sleep. And so mind is for mental fatigue, stress, and anxiety. Body is for pain and inflammation and muscle recovery. And sleep is to help you get to sleep faster and to have deeper and better sleep. And so we combined CBD with a number of other all organic ingredients that help in for these for these use cases. So for an example, our sleep product combines CBD oil with L-theanine and chamomile tea extract, just three ingredients to help you with sleep versus there's a number of melatonin products on the market that are habit forming. And there's some research that's coming out about melatonin that with uh, linked to depression, that's um, super concerning. Well, we were talking the other day and your vision is kind of potentially a lot bigger than this. Yeah. Like the CBD thing is a great entranceway into the health and wellness field. Right. Exactly. But your vision is so big. And so, cause I mean, to this day, especially with my own health challenges, I find myself spending groves of money on my health. Yeah. And it's addicting. You know, yeah. I like doing it. You know, I like putting my money towards something that makes me feel good, whether it be acupuncture, totally. whether it be massage. But basically these things are, I'm spending a lot of money on it and, but I'm happy to spend that money. And do you think that there's a very big opportunity to, to create something where people can go and recover like you were talking about? Yeah, that's the idea. So we are starting with a line of purpose-driven supplements and what we intend to do next is open up a, a retail location Um, where people can go and have a number of recovery experiences. Our PR agency would kill me if I gave you any more detail than that. (laughs) That's exciting. Yeah. You were at this event that one time you were telling me about. It was like Mm -hmm. a very super exclusive event with like 5,000 entrepreneurs or something like that. The summit. The summit. But you remember you got in a a table, a round table with like three individuals or two individuals and you ended up having one of the most inspiring, awesome conversations of your life. Yeah, yeah. We happened to have a dinner at, so this, what this conference did was every night. So it was like, I don't even know if you'd call it a conference necessarily, but basically summit is like, you can look up at, look it up online. Um, it's, uh, they bring a bunch of entrepreneurs and artists and interesting people together. And I think there's like three components. There's like, you know, speakers and that kind of thing. And then there's like art and music experiences as well. And what they did, this was like two years ago. Uh, it's here in LA. 
and they like every night you get set up on a dinner and so like you're just you get a text that's like go to this restaurant um, and one night I was there, I sat down with, one guy was like this director of a play. Another guy was a journalist who worked for Ariana Huffington. And another was like a real estate, a big real estate guy. Um, and so we had like a diverse sort of group at this table and it was just us four. And we just happened to have one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had in my life about all sorts of different things. When do you feel um, like most alive as a human? When? During that, probably. Um, there's a few things I feel most alive at. I, I, I think about it through the context of flow. You really try to just optimize for flow. Explain flow. Flow is when you are so engulfed in an experience that you are, you are one with the experience. When the, this is super sort of philosophical, but when the, because uh, there's sort of there's there's things that literally happen in the brain, basically parts of your brain that turn off when you're in flow. What can flow best be compared to that people are more familiar with? Huh. Like meditative states. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But I think it's just when you're fully engulfed in experience that like you're you're fully engulfed in doing something that you're just in pure experience. Like when you're you know. Most times you're, you know, you've got this mental chatter in your, your head that's sort of going on as you're doing things, right? And you're like thinking these random stuff and that ceases to, to happen when you're fully engulfed in doing something. It happens, you know, I think most frequently for people when they play music or play sports. You, you just know, get the, flow, the just... flow state is talked about a lot in, in the context of athletics, for sure, right? Like you can think about the, you know, the quarterback of, of, uh, the football team, you know, during the fourth quarter when they're down by three points, you know, and driving for the game win, like that, that he is in flow. So anyways, I get flow from a few things. Um, one is writing. And so I write a lot. Uh, I try to write every day. Of course, that doesn't happen. But um, by writing, do you mean sort of like journaling? Yeah, journaling. I don't, I don't, I don't sit down and say today I, you know, did X, Y, Z. Um, like journaling is sometimes thought of. I write about different things that are interesting to me. It's funny, I've got, you know, I've got probably 50 articles I could put up, but I just have, haven't, haven't done anything with them yet. Um, for, a, for a while, I was writing like a thousand words a day. I think I sort that's, of go through phases. That's gotta be one of the most rewarding hobbies in the world, that and cooking. Yeah. Because if you can cook bomb food, your life <laughs> is just 10 times better. Yeah, I've wanted to be uh, a good cook. I don't enjoy it that much. Right, but you love food. You're the biggest foodie I know. I do love food. What is it about food that you love so much, the culinary experience? The culinary experience, um, I mean, I just love food. I, I don't know that it's that deep. No, uh, it is deep. <laughs> you, you will, you, you'll spend like $20 on like your outfit. Mm -hmm. You'll spend no money on your clothes, your cars, mm -hmm. your Airbnb, your hotel. You'll spend as cheap as possible, but you'll drop bills yeah. on the, the five-star phenomenal cuisine the, because you mentioned that it's like, you mentioned that it's like art to you yeah totally um and i've had phases where i care more or less about these things right i do think it's like sort of like the world's like oldest form of art like we've been eating for and preparing food and coming around the dinner table or in the cave in the case of our ancestors for a hundred thousand years and that's cool to me I think that that like thinking about it through that lens. Um, yeah, I don't have any. I don't have any profound thoughts on on, on food. To be honest, I just really like food. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but the journaling aspect is huge. Just being able to record your thoughts and be able to know what you were thinking a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Like, how was your brain? You know working? what's funny about it? I've never. I don't think I ever have gone back and read what I wrote. <laughs> that's first. I just want to laugh. Like that's funny. Yeah. But at the same time, maybe that's not the purpose. Maybe it's, the... it's just. Yeah, I don't think it is. But you seem to be someone that's very like you are very Tim Ferriss like, and that you kind of run your life as a human experiment in a sense. I think. I mean, from my, you might not think so, but from my understanding of you, I think so <laughs> of that of you. You're yeah. very like, when you go into something, you go all in on it. You you dive in, you don't sleep. You just learn everything you can about it. You become engulfed in it yeah. and you become so passionate. Like you're a very passionate dude. Sure. And that passion can just kind of just breeds out to so many different things. Mm-hmm. How do you foresee, like you got the recover thing going, you're doing a lot of good stuff with that. Yeah. You have a big goal with that, big dream with that. One day you might be able to go into a recover lounge Get mm-hmm. your infrared sauna, <laughs> get your, uh, get your massage, get your all sorts of yep. stuff that's going on in that, in that, in that environment. But what do you see? Like, what do you think is the ultimate goal for Dan Hunt? Like out of all the things you've done, out of all the books you've read, what do you think's like the meaning of your life? And like, what do wow. you think you would really want to go to? <laughs> like, where does Whoa. this entrepreneur journey end? Big question. You? I don't know that I figured that out yet. Um, or that I ever will. You might have had Uh, some I I do know that I want to just do things that I enjoy and be surrounded by people who I love. Um, And that's about, I want to always be working on something that like lights me up. That's super important. I'd like to have impact in a positive way. Not super important to me like where that is like it's not like super important to me to work on climate change or to work on ai or to work on right it's it's a lot of different things are interesting to me but it, it would it would be great to have impact but it's not a one thing that i think you said was really interesting to me was we had a conversation about digital nomads yeah right i don't think people call themselves digital nomads anymore i think it's it's segueing out really quickly <laughs> but you talked about like yeah everyone wants to travel the world and be a digital nomad right like i was doing right. that in Colombia. you visited me yeah sick. Um, but like a lot of these people that are traveling so much, they never really build, they never feel like they're home. And you were, you, I think it was you who mentioned something to me that people that are traveling so much, they never really build that, that layers of home. Like when you have a home, when you have friends that like real community, real community and yeah. like humans, we're supposed to be in a community. Like, yeah. I truly think that, I mean, me personally, I know after this podcast, we have like 15 people coming know, over. So We're cooking the dankest chicken. It's going <laughs> to be phenomenal. But just like having good people around that all love you and care about you, it's so rewarding. And I know for even for me, like when I got really sick, like because of the stomach, the stomach Fs everything up. It plays with your like depression, anxiety. Yeah. Like I've never, I mean, anyone that lives in this podcast knows I'm a pretty stoked human, like pretty jazzed up on life. But man, like when the stomach's wrong, like it flips everything upside down. Which is another thing about depression and anxiety. A lot of it starts in your stomach. Like a lot of people aren't actually crazy. They yeah. actually have stomach issues. So, so going back to your earlier question. So there are two big areas that I'm super interested in, in terms of vision for myself, what are problems that I want to work on. It's one of them is community. And I think about it through the lens of, you know, evolution. And for a hundred thousand years, you know, we traveled the earth in little tribes of uh, 25 to, you know, 40 people. I think the upper limit was like 30-ish uh, on these hunter-gatherer tribes. Um, so super tight-knit communities you're doing everything with, right? Um, and I think that we're at a point now where 
we're really asking, a lot of people are really asking like, you know, is community necessary? Not, not just a, it's like necessary for mental health. Um, and there's a breakdown of community in, in America right now that I think is a tragedy. And um, it's for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one, there's, there's far less religious, you know, at least in, in, in our age um, bracket, people are, aren't, aren't partaking in, in going to church or partaking in religious religion at all. And that was a key driver of, of community for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that, and there's a few other factors, and, and I haven't gotten super deep on this, so I don't know all the, the reasons, but there's definitely a breakdown of community in America, and I think it's, it's um, directly uh, responsible for the rise in, in depression and mental health issues that we're seeing. And part of it's people being you know, super connected online and, and, and foregoing in-person community events and whatnot because they have this stimulus online. There's stuff going on there with social media, of course, and people are really lonely. My, uh, my dad brought this up, so I don't know how much factional this is yeah, based yeah. off of just throwing it out there. Um, <laughs> But he was talking about like how when we're kids, we put we, we have a newborn baby and we get a room for the baby and the baby goes in a separate room in Western culture. That's very normal. Right. But like in most other cultures that, that like you have like five to seven people sleeping in one bed, like there's community, like there's totally. like people. Li- and that's why, like, I don't know, I'm very fascinated by just the culture in India. Yeah. Because they seem like they're so much happier than a lot of people in the Western world. That reminded me. So there's a few things there. There's the religion. There's the decline of Main Street, which is like the notion that like, you know, the Main Street in these little suburban towns all over is is, is, is less popular. People are going to chains or buying their stuff on Amazon. And that would be a congregation of community. Um, and more people are moving. Uh, it used to be that, you know, a hundred years ago in America, you're very unlikely to leave your, your hometown. You know, you'd build community over long periods of time. You know, you're with your family and whatnot. And more and more people now are moving, you know, among our friends, you move several times, you know, for different jobs or whatnot. And that's becoming more and more common, it seems like. I wonder if that uh, has to do with just social media pressures too, because there's always so much beautiful images yeah, of people traveling. They're always feeling like they're missing out by not moving. Yeah, it's terrible. You know, it's so terrible, but like Justin Peterson, uh, we did a podcast like episode 13 or 14 or something. JP was up visiting with his wife, Lee, uh-huh. and he was saying, uh, he came down, we got an acai bowl. By the nice. way, we should get an acai bowl before everyone comes. It's I, I got the dang spot. Amen. But uh, he was saying how, like, he's like, Len Jones, when's the last time we saw each other? And I looked at him, I'm like, I couldn't even remember. Because I see him all the time on social media. It was five years ago. And I'm like, what? I felt like I just saw you, like, I don't know, the other day. And that's because of that social media. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. The Instagram stories. You're able to keep people in your life without being like right there and that community is great because you can pick up where you left off but with that said it's also just as bad like you you mentioned the screen time issue mm-hmm. we're putting way too much time on our screens dogs yeah. like jesus my screen time hit like nine hours the other day and i was like whoa mm-hmm. damn and I, I feel embarrassed almost by it mm-hmm. because there's no way you're that productive there's no way yeah i think um the thing that's so tough about Instagram is like, you know, everyone's just putting up highlight reels of their life. Mm-hmm. And then you have everyone's looking at everyone else's highlight reel and looking at their reality. Because the average is six hours. Six hours is the average amount of screen time someone in, is yeah. using on their iPhone right now. 
Yeah, it's crazy. And like, I mean, for it's it's my alarm when I wake up. Yeah, I put it to sleep. Audible's phenomenal. It's such a tool. I don't know why I just threw Audible in there, but Audible is a great tool. Yeah, for a while I was actually locking my phone away from myself. I got this little like uh, kitchen timer box. Uh, you can like search this on Amazon, um, and I think it's just like kitchen lock timer or something along that those lines meant to like lock up cookies or something. Right. Uh, and so you can only have one cookie a day and then you'd set the timer and it unlocks. I remember how stoked you were when you first told me, you're like, dude, I'm putting my phone in the box, bro. We only got like five more minutes to chat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I did that for a while. Um, did it help? It did help, but I don't, I think my hunch is that there's something unhealthy about that type of restriction. Like I'd rather have, like just the willpower myself to do. Like I don't want to have to lock things away from myself. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've done that with <laughs> cannabis as well. Like if I like was smoking too much in the morning or something, it's not helping me. You know, get get my work done. I've locked it away. And I think that there's just something that's not great about that. So I stopped doing that. But I do try to turn my phone off, and I do not use my phone as an alarm. I think the two things. So I've had this Aura Ring for almost a year now. And it tracks, you should look up Warring. It's an incredible company. It's just a little ring you wear that tracks your sleep. And I've been like isolating variables and trying to figure out like what impacts my sleep. Because for me, I've definitely learned that like the biggest, uh, like if I'm in sort of a depressed mood, it's because I didn't get enough sleep. Like I've learned like sleep is just so important for me to have energy, for me to be mentally clear, for me to be in a good mood. Um, and since I have sort of these, you know, mood uh, swings, um, that's super important for me to sort of regulate. And so I've, I have really tried to optimize my health and wellness around sleep first, that that's really the most important thing. Um, and I, I really think that's the case and I haven't gone deep on the research here, but there's, there's this book called why we sleep. That's incredible. Um, that you should definitely check out. Um, that does go deep on what we're learning about sleep and how important it is for your body to bounce back and get into homeostasis for you to perform, et cetera. And this is a long, this is a winded answer, but the main thing that I found in, in, for my sleep in my life was that using the phone before bed totally destroys not only my, uh, the time in which it takes me to go to sleep, but the quality of my sleep as well. And so I've been trying really hard to two hours before bed, turn my phone off, turn all electronics off. That's called the Aura um, Ring? It's called an Aura Ring, yeah. It's really cool. It's like, I think it's like 250 bucks or something. Um, so it's a little expensive, but you get it really works, cool though. data. You get, yeah, it's not just sleep. You also get like heart rate variability and um, heart rate variability. There's a correlation between heart rate variability and like general stress level. So you can sort of monitor like how stressed you are and, and we're learning it's really important to manage stress for, for your health. And so Fitbits it's, it's do great that as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I don't know that Fitbits do heart rate variability actually. I, I don't know. I'm not that hip on the, the subject, but anyways, I think that the other terrible, the two terrible things that people, so many people are doing and they're just the worst habits are using your bed, using your phone in bed before or after you, you sleep, um, waking up and immediately like going on Instagram, I think is like one of the single worst habits you could possibly have. And so many people do that. I've done that many times. And so I stopped waking up to my phone. Uh, You think about it, like the alarm is such a terrible experience. And for 100,000 years, we woke up to the sun. And then now we have this like beep, 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 beep. (laughs) Like it's terrible. It's like the worst thing ever. And then the, the... 
the, you know, snoozing <laughs> over and over again, which so many people do. You know, I've got friends who I've had times where I've snoozed 10 times mm-hmm. uh, and you're just falling asleep and waking yourself up. So long as you're waking yourself up. Also terrible for sleep, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I got a sunrise clock and I think this is a product everyone should own. Uh, and it just so that I can turn my phone off and it wakes me up by slowly illuminating the room with light from like an orange hue. I think Philips hue. I think Philips is the one who produces it. Um, and it has a little like bird uh, tripping sound that that gradually gets louder. And so you sort of come out of sleep naturally. And that's made a huge and that's difference. a separate device. So it's not you're not playing with your right, phone. Right. So that I don't have my phone because, yeah, if I don't do that, if I don't shut off my phone, I will go on my phone immediately. That's a whole um, like there's a, there's got to be so much yeah. so much money in that opportunity right there in in helping people with phone addiction. Yeah, I think so. That's got to be like yeah, the next billion are, dollar like if someone can truly master that and figure that out. Yeah, next biggest company, huge. Yeah, I think um, it's good. People are definitely becoming at least like extremely aware of the problem True. right now, yeah. uh, which is good. Like we're making progress. Um, you know, these technologies are fairly new. Like we have to figure out how to live with them as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I have, I'm very optimistic that we will, but yeah, phone addiction is, is something that, um, I think it's, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing. And it's, uh, something that obviously a lot of people struggle with. Would you consider um, us all cyborgs? We're, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're slowly becoming cyborgs. That's for sure. You know, ever since we had the, uh, you know, desktop. We started with the desktop. Right? We started with computers in these huge rooms, right? And then they're and then they're on our desktop, and then laptop we can carry it with us, uh, and then cell phone. The computers in our pocket, and now I've got an Apple Watch. I've got a computer on my wrist. I have a computer on my finger. Uh, AirPods. You know, uh, the computers are getting closer and closer to us and more intimate. And um, I think augmented reality is coming up on us a lot faster than people think. Um, you know, there's companies making incredible progress in AR and, um, it seems fairly, it's, it's, it's seems fairly obvious at this point that that's going to be the next medium in which we use computers. You know, I think Apple's probably less than two or three years away from launching their first version of augmented reality glasses. And I think that's going to be a huge turning that's going to be a really meaningful point in history for a number of reasons i remember i used to love sims when i was really younger like sims the game i remember me and my cousin travis it's a beautiful day in lake george we're living in like a, like he has a beautiful spot right on the on the water amazing so dope it's awesome great upbringing because of that's that spot and we're like it's a great day but yet we're clocking in seven eight hours like playing sims like living this fake life on xbox yeah I think when AR comes out, people are going to get lost in it. It's going to be like both so amazing that like you can like be anyone to do anything, do be like, it's going to be so crazy, the integrative nature of AR. Yeah. Well, I think AR is a huge opportunity for, for technology to get out of our way and be more con- contextually driven as well. We have incredible utility, right? From our phones, like the ability to hail a car to me at any point. And like, it's just unbelievable, right? The capabilities that we now have because of our cell phones, uh, but they really get in our way in having to look at this little box. Like I, if, if I have augmented reality glasses on and I've got my uh, AirPods in as well, and so I've got both voice and 
and sight I can just say out loud in real time exactly what I need direct me to the closest sushi restaurant and have a little arrow in front of me that brings me to the closest sushi restaurant and now I no longer have to pull out this box of my phone and stare at this screen and be disengaged with with life right right now you have to disengage with your experience in order to go into this phone experience and then come back out AR is an opportunity to integrate these capabilities into our experience in a way that allows technology to get out of our way so that we don't have to do that um, and that's super exciting to me this is a little left field but what what do you think is the timeline for Elon Musk's self-driving cars wow this is such a hot topic and I'm not a I'm not an expert at all. I don't know, man. He's obviously made some super aggressive assertions on timeline. I think his last, I think the last time he said it's like two years away or something along those lines. I heard lines. last, I heard you it's heard like a year and that. a half, yeah. Yeah, I'm not the one to answer that question. Okay. I don't know, yeah. Are you a big Tesla fan though? I am a big Tesla fan. I'm, if you were to buy a vehicle. It would definitely be a Tesla. I don't, I don't think I will uh, own a car anytime soon, but um you know, if, if he's actually able to fulfill his vision of turning a car into an asset, that's incredible. You know, right, that's yeah. the, the long-term vision of Tesla, for those who don't know, is to build a ride-hailing service, you know, with these self-driving cars um, so that you can actually buy a Tesla and then have it be making you money while you sleep. Joining the um, fleet. Joining the fleet, right. That makes a lot of sense to me. There's a lot of controversy over his, his actual method of self-driving technology. So like, the, I, you guys must be pretty familiar with this stuff at Trueface, right? Most, I think my understanding of it, uh, you should ask your CTO, I bet he'd know, that most people are using LiDAR, Elon's using cameras, and there's just like a ton of controversy over that. Like a lot of people just think he, he's not gonna figure it out mm. with cameras. Yeah. Um, but cameras we'll is a funky topic because people get really upset about it. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that they're being watched. Everyone's being watched already. Like every time you go into any retail store anywhere, you're getting watched. You just don't see it because it's not in your face. But when it's in your face, people are like, why are you recording me? What are you doing? What's right. going on? But everyone's already being recorded. Yeah, that's a... Uh, I mean, vision, vision technology is going to transform everything. Yeah, the notion... I remember there was a moment when I really got it, like what it means for a computer to see. Uh, and like what that means for the for for our capabilities is is crazy. One thing we're working um, on at Trueface is threat detection. So basically, cameras can recognize guns, assault rifles, weapons, and the idea there is school shootings in America are outrageous, mm -hmm. should not happen. But the idea there is maybe not just schools or whatever being able to recognize a problem instantly mm -hmm. and alert authorities. It's kind of amazing. Like mm -hmm. where the technology is getting at and totally. the, safe, the safetiness of, of everything. S cyber warfare is the new warfare, right? as far as I can tell. Um, who knows what's going on, you know, at the highest levels of government and whatnot. But seems like there's a lot of that. Is it, how long do you think until Amazon's dropping our stuff via drones? Did you see that thing with Jeff Bezos and his wife? Do you see that like... The divorce? So I haven't looked into this too much. Not just the divorce, but um, the, the, the texts that were released... Like Jeff, I remember I had this, I read this article on it. Someone hacked Jeff Bezos' phone. And like, I just thought that was crazy. Like, you've got to imagine Jeff Bezos as the richest person on earth has pretty good security. Damn. And someone got his, you know, text messages. Yeah. So crazy. I think, you know, my, my, anything you put in writing or that is on the internet, I think you should just assume you should be comfortable with that being on a billboard. And if, if you're not, don't do it. Right. Uh, because, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to have, yeah, everything's at risk. Right. Know?
Yeah, it changes everything. It's like that picture of Mark Zuckerberg. When yeah. That went viral of the little uh, piece of paper over his video camera. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. what's he incentive? What's going on there? Yeah, everyone has those now, too. I saw you have one. Yeah, it's clutch. I have one as well that slides so you can slide it, you know. Yeah, add that to your list of gadgets for all the listeners. Right, right. Make sure you're not getting peeped on. <laughs> so, Dan, this is a, uh, a staple. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about what you're doing with Recover and yeah. some of the exciting stuff that you've done with, with Mass Roots and just the learning journey. And I'm stoked just to continuously monitor your learning journey because uh-huh. you just see things very different than a lot of people I've met in, in the world. Uh-huh. And I think that's very, it's, you know, it's very clutch to have friends that also inspire you to think bigger and be bigger on top of just having fun, right? It's very mm-hmm. important to be around it, surrounded by good people. But if you were to go back in the past, okay, for you, I'm going to go ahead and say 18 years old, mm-hmm. before you got the call from Mass Roots, before mm-hmm. you jumped into that, before you even went to school, mm-hmm. and you could have told yourself one, two, or three things, and you could have said like, yo, listen, homie, I got like three to five minutes like I, it, this is you six years from now and if you mm-hmm. could have said to yourself a couple things what would you have said to yourself to save yourself a ton of time money and maybe just if i actually did that i wouldn't say anything because i wouldn't want to mess up uh you know i wouldn't want to mess with with the past lame but answer. Though. yeah yeah but lame answer so what i got the premise um i don't know man i've never really thought that hard about that uh i maybe i would say that like most things don't matter most things just really don't matter that much. <laughs> Both in the, the case of in business, especially, uh, you know, as a first-time founder, just get wound up over so many different things that you then look back on and realize just don't matter that much, and you just wasted so much stress and anxiety and you know energy on these things that just don't matter that much. Right. Um, so I would take I would t- I would try to tell myself to take a lot of things a lot less seriously. I think I would also tell myself to focus on more on having fun. Interesting. Yeah. Because I think we do our best work when we're having fun. And there were definitely times that you know, just like overly stressed and overly serious about everything. <laughs> yeah, like you're taking away years of your life because you're yeah, like, Yeah, and I mean... You're putting all these unnecessary weights, mental weights on your shoulder. Totally, totally. you and, think it's the end of the world, but it's not. Yeah, and one, one of my favorite, favorite quotes is like, you know, most things are not as good or as bad as they first seem. I think that's super true. Like you go, you know, entrepreneurship's a roller coaster and you got to be really, I think, careful about how you ride it. When you think that everything that good happens is like going to save you and be like the best thing ever and then your expectations are crushed because that's never the case. And when you think everything that bad happens is the end of the world, I mean, you're just riding that roller coaster hard and that's really tough on your body. And, you know, I think a lot about not burning out and how to not burn out because it is a real thing. I do think burnout is a real thing and you can really, it really sucks. I've definitely burnt out before. So, you know, this is a marathon not a sprint that's definitely a newer perspective i've had that like i just think on much longer timelines now so stuff doesn't matter as much as you yeah. think it does. also i think have fun yeah and what's number three people underestimate this is like i think warren buffett or someone said this it's like you know you underestimate what you can overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in a decade um i think i would say that as well and that like you know, I think people have this, go through these cycles, and I've definitely done this, right? Where you like set a goal, like a really aggressive goal on like a six month timeline, and you just overestimate what you can do. And then you don't hit the goal, and you become super like upset with yourself 
or disappointed and then, you know, give up. And I think that like a longer term perspective is, is super important because the, the greatest thing in life is compounding interest in all things. If you're building wealth, it's the compounding interest is how you build wealth. Um, when you're building relationships compound, knowledge compounds. And so on a one year, if you're, if you're just looking at your first year of a 10 year compounding thing, uh, it's pretty unimpressive, you know, and you sort of feel like you're not making enough progress because that compounding interest hasn't hasn't kicked in yet. So I would take I would tell myself to take a longer a longer term view. And I would even say I'm not quite here there yet. Like right now I'm thinking in terms of the next decade and like what I want to do in the next decade and having that patience with myself. But soon enough, I'll, I'd like to be thinking on 50 year timescales. You know, wh what's really important in, in the next in the context of the next 50 years. Um, so I think longer term thinking is, I think we have just too much short term thinking in general. Right. But um, I, I also think we need more goal setting is something that seems so obvious to the successful, mm. but it's something so overlooked by society. People mm -hmm. don't have goals. Yeah. If you ask someone like, what are your goals? Yeah. If they can't answer those, those things. It's like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. What's your goal? And it's like, that's a good lesson for everyone listening. Do you know your goals? Do you have a, a one-year goal, a three-year goal, a 10-year goal? Right. You should have those goals, and it's a great exercise. There's, an, there's a book called The Art of Exceptional Living by Jim Rohn. Shout uh -huh. out. And he does this thing where you write out 50 things right now that you want to do. Write out 50 things that you want to accomplish or have and or do in your life. Out. And then rank them, one through 10, yeah. based on how long it would take you to get them. Uh-huh. And then go through them after looking through that exercise. After you've ranked these, one through 10, then decide... Which ones do you actually want now? Now that you've seen how long it'll take and what you want to do. And then it boils it down to what's a one-year goal? What's a good five-year goal? What's a good 10-year goal? Sure. Et cetera. Sure. And then you get that excitement because once you kind of sure. get those little wins, you realize those things are going to accumulate and it's possible. That's, a, that's what excites me about life because I don't know. I've always kind of talked down on myself since like uh, Jones, you know. You're too silly, man. You're, yeah, yeah. You're not focused enough, bro. Like, you, everyone does that, right? Of course. You're not good looking enough. You're not a good enough speaker. You're yeah. not, you, you have ADD, like blah, yeah. blah, blah. But it's all bullshit. Totally. And like, there's people a lot less smarter than you and a lot less qualified than you living your dream and or people need you to step up and make advancements to society. Yeah. Totally. I think uh, it was like Peter Thiel had said, like, courage is in shorter supply than genius. And I think that's definitely the case. There are tons of uh, incredibly smart people, but uh, courage is pretty rare. People, you know, people who are willing to take big risks is, is, is fairly rare. And you have to you have to get over fears to be able to do anything. Right. Um, yeah, I do have I have I do have some 10 year goals. I'd like to you know, build a really high impact business. I have four goals and I've done this exercise as well. Sort of like the Warren Buffett famous one is like you, he was like talking to his pilot or something. And, uh, he said, you know, what are the, what are the 25 things you want in the next 10 years or something? And he, he wrote all them out and then he said, okay, now cross off the, you know, now rank them and cross off the bottom 20. And that's now your, uh, you know, things to avoid at all costs. And this is a lesson on focus, right? Um, and there's really four things that I want to do in the next decade. Uh, one is build high impact businesses. Let me let me back up. I I, I want to do these four things, not because what I acquire for them 
like whether that be wealth or you know status or any of those things but because i enjoy doing them and i think that's super important because on the topic of goals a lot of people want things material things especially for the wrong reasons right um and i've thought a lot about that and i really want to just optimize around my personal day-to-day experience like to me if i like have to grind and like do things i hate for 10 years to like achieve something to acquire something whether that be a position or a house whatever that totally sucks and i'm not willing to do that so the four things are build high impact businesses because i just think business is my sport and it's it's so much fun write a book get a black belt in jiu-jitsu and build a community and those are the only four things that i want to do in the next decade and i'm trying really hard to just eliminate everything else and so this is core to sort of my my emerging philosophy if you will i'm calling it removalism uh (laughs) which is basically just like trying to just remove shit from my life it's like the key strategy to like improve my life instead of adding new things and i think it's interesting because we have so many messages and around us by the nature of marketing and advertising everyone wants you to buy something mm. uh and they're telling you that you need to add new things in your life you need to start running you need to start you know reading more books you need to start whatever um but there's an infinite number of things that you could add into your life it's like really hard to know what the correct things are to add into your life but there's a finite number of things that you're currently doing and it's often pretty clear what you need to stop doing uh, like I think any one of us could like tell you right now two or three things you're currently doing or people you're hanging out with or jobs you're taking that like you probably shouldn't take. You hate them or, you know, um, it's not good for you uh, or whatever. And so, um, you know, I try really hard to be mindful of that. Like it actually all stemmed from the Marie Kondo, her, her method. Uh, I read that book and I actually chatted with her for a little bit. Really? Um, once, yeah, I met her in LA at Summit actually. And um she, I read that book uh, when we were in Dominican. Was, I don't know if I was ever talking about that. Yeah, but you were. Yeah, and um, that book's just about material things, right? And now she's famous on Netflix and stuff. I haven't seen it yet, but apparently it's a huge show where she goes into people's houses and she helps them cool. clean it. Uh, yeah, she was. She barely speaks English. Barely, barely speaks English. So it was tough to... She had a translator, and even then it was kind of tough to have a real conversation with her. But... Uh, regardless, it started with this, and her book is super simple. You don't need to read the book. It's, you know, basically the condo method is this you take everything you own, you put it in the center of one room, you go through everything one by one, you hold it in your hand, and you ask yourself, does this spark joy in my life? And you could spin that question a couple different ways, but the core notion is like, is this something that I truly love? And if you don't, you figure out a way to get rid of it, and, you know, hopefully give it to a Salvation Army or whatever. And if you love it, you keep it. And if you do this, then you're only surrounded by things that you love. And imagine being in a world only surrounded by things that you love. And I think the same principle applies to not just material things, but to your habits, to the people that you hang out with, to the beliefs that you have, the ideas that you have about the world around you. And that we're much more likely to make progress on our lives by focusing on what to remove and allowing serendipity to bring in uh, additions when it does. And it will. You know, you'll always add new things into your life when you discover them. But... Um, I think we're better off just removing and, and more, more so today than ever before where we are just over, you know, we weren't meant to for, for 90,000 years, humans, uh, you know, woke up and, and hunted and ate food and hung out with their family and had sex. And, uh, that was it. 
You know what I mean? And now like the level of complexity that we're dealing with and like the amount of noise is like, we were not designed to handle this. You know what I mean? Um, the amount of information that's coming at us all the time is like super overwhelming. Another reason I think people are, are anxious and, and having mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, and so I try to really reduce that. I do not read the news at all, ever. Uh, I think that's one thing I've removed that has seriously improved my life. Because I also think this goes back to the, the timeline thing, which is that like most news just doesn't matter. Like it matters like on a, you know, for two days and then it's gone and it, like, and to give mental energy to something that's so insignificant, um, you know, these are, Trump said this, Trump said that. It's like, I don't care what Trump said. Like, I'm not going to be able to change currently where I sit, be able to have any impact on it's our so government. fascinating how you can F up so royally and no one cares a week from now. Yeah, seriously. I mean, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so if there is something that's super important, I'll hear about it. Like, I have friends who do read the news, and, like, they tell me these things, you know? Uh, and I think in terms of information filters as well, nothing beats really great humans. If you're surrounded by, like, really great humans who, like, read a lot of blogs and stuff, like, they'll get you the good, they'll get you the good stuff, so you don't have to worry about doing that. And so I've cut out the only form of content consumption I really do now is reading books. And there's some, there's a few blogs I think that are really good, and there's a few podcasts that I've listened to as well, but... but I try to generally consume nothing that's news, nothing that's short-term focused. This is a little left field, but Jeff, I read something about Jeff Bezos once, and it talks about accomplishing tasks, because mm-hmm. people are like, okay, cool, I got my goals, but now how am I going to put these into, into action? Yeah. And one really cool exercise you can do daily is you can write down everything you want to do, say it's 20 things, 20 tasks, down yeah. from picking up your prescription at CVS to sure. all the way to creating an entire new funnel or whatever. You write down all those goals and then you think which three have the biggest ripple effect on all the others. Interesting. I've never heard this. And that's a way to attack multiple goals at once. So you start with the ones that are going to affect everything. (laughs) So you're accomplishing so much more at once. (coughs) Just a random little key nugget there. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a few things that you can do, you know, that are like... Even if you're not super clear, it takes a while to like build a clear vision for what you want for your life for sure. And I think, you know, rightfully so many people at our age have, you know, have no idea, but there's certainly a few things you can do that are going to be useful no matter what that vision ends up being. Building wealth and uh, community and uh, becoming persuasive. And there's a number of skills that are sort of, you know, widely, super widely applicable to that point that I think are worth focusing on, uh, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never, never heard that before. I hate to do lists though. I dislike to do lists. They work for some people. They don't work for me. I'd like to be able to wake up, you know, my vision for my life, my day to day experience. I want to wake up and work on whatever I want to work on. Um, that's super important to me to like be able to go with the flow literally whatever i'm drawn to on a day i like if i think it's my the most interesting thing today then that's what i'm gonna do today and i like that's really important from a life experience like a quality of life for me to like have that freedom to be able to like work on whatever is mm-hmm. the most interesting problem to me on a given day and i think that when we impose to-do lists on ourselves we lose opportunities to to dive into things that are interesting to us just because we want to so in order to have that lifestyle that you want you need to be able to work with a large like a team you need to have a team yeah, because certain things like I I have a to do list when I produce a podcast. I need to make sure I have A B C D E F G all figured out. Otherwise, it's not the way I want. But if I had yeah. a massive team, I could actually just not worry about that. Yeah, and I think usually like 
so there's like tasks, right? There's like, I need to like, you know, pay a bill or like, and that's separate, right? Where I try to just bundle those and I'm terrible about doing small things. I mean, just, I will put off, <laughs> you know, this is kind of a funny story. I, I had my car in, uh, in Denver, uh, someone broke into the car and like took my re- registration and my license, like took my license off the thing. They're like trying to steal the identity of the car or whatever, or however that works. I had to go to the DMV to like get a new, to get a new license. And of course in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. Uh, you know, I don't have any of the materials. I need new everything. Like I'm going to have to go through all this process. I put that off for six months. I literally did not drive my car for six months just because of how badly I did not want to go to the DMV. Uh, it is a terrible habit. I, what I'd like to do, what I aspire to do, is be able to just bundle tasks, you know, the shit I don't want to do, into one day a week and just get it out of the way so that I can focus on whatever is most interesting to me at any given time. And that's obviously not always, you know, sometimes you just can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have an incoming crisis that you have to deal with that is urgent. But I think things are usually a lot less urgent than they seem. You know, it's the, the balancing between urgency and importance is super interesting to me. I think we often over-index on urgency when we should be just like putting in the work on the important things every day. Things are just like things are not as bad or good as they first think things are tend to not be as urgent as they seem. Right. Uh, people, especially in startups, like people freak out over things, make mm. things seem like they're so urgent. Uh, and I think they'd be much better off of just you know, focusing on the core important aspects of the business every single day and just doing that um, and not letting these urgent things frattle them. That's one thing I've learned just in our evolution of our business is just like when things hit the fan, yeah. it's just kind of like, oh, this is burning. Oh, this is burning. Oh, this is burning. You know, yeah. it's no longer like, oh my God, this is, it's right, like, right. there's always going to be big issues happening. Totally. And you've got to, in startups, you have to let some fires burn. I mean, like, so that you can, you can, you can put out the biggest ones. Is that like a Katy Perry song? Uh, no, it's, it's definitely not original. Someone, I've heard that someone say that before. Um, but you have to pick your battles, right? And like some yeah. things are just going to be fucked up and mm-hmm. uh, you have to accept that. And that's one thing that is, you know, being a second time founder now, it's probably the thing I'm most grateful for is that like it is, dude, the, the roller coaster of Mass Roots was so crazy. We raised $40 million. We went public early as a startup. We were in the cannabis space on a legal gray area. You know, we fought Apple. We held concerts with Lil Wayne and, and um, we had, you know, epic board battles between our CEO and, and our board. And you can read about that stuff online. And, and it's, uh, it was such a roller coaster that like nothing, like barely anything phases me <laughs> when it comes to uh, startups, you know? Uh, it's just part of the game. Shit's going to be fucked up. And uh, I try really hard to be calm about stuff now. And, or actually, it's, it's sort of coming, comes more natural now. Uh, just from that experience because after you get you get sick of freaking out about you know things over and over again so this is one thing that uh, <laughs> I love asking everybody that we speak with that we talk with anyone that's a high-performing entrepreneur or someone that's just making big moves in their life yeah uh, now if you know me I'm obsessed with things like fish anyone that's helping the environment or someone that's sure. living their dream or you know Joey Coleman who uh, felt like his life was so stale, so he bought a 50-foot sailboat, rebuilt it from head to toe, sailed it to Nicaragua, started a business doing pirate sailboat trips, and like living your dream life, like stuff that we dream about, people making moves. Uh, but it all starts out with taking a step in the right direction. So 
a question I love to ask is what would you say to the person that currently might be say working a job they hate? Maybe they're just stuck in the minutia. Um, they got bills to pay. They feel under, uh, they feel like they're not learning. They just feel like they're just kind of living in a someone else's dream. They're stuck in a schedule. They're stuck in a rut. They're just, life is so boring. They're just not into it. Or someone that's killing it, making three, $400,000 a year. They got the lifestyle, the car, the house, but they just still feel like they're not living up to their purpose. There's, they're, they're, they're living someone else's dream. They're not doing what they really want, whether that be going sailing or starting a business. So part of them really wants to jump in, but they're just scared. They don't know what to do. What would you say to that person that's right on the step of making a, a huge decision in their life? Do it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's tough. I think it's so, you know, I think it's such a tough question to answer because it's so individual. Uh, it's so contextual. You know, it's different for everyone. I think it'd be hard to make like a blanket statement like, you know, it's, it's always good to take the risk because sometimes it's not, right? Some people you know, leave their company and, and that was a mistake and, and, and they can never go back to the position they had before. You know, sometimes it does make sense to be more strategic and save up money, you know, for a few years, even though you don't love your job. I am incredibly lucky to be able to do what I love every day. Yeah, I don't, I really don't know how to answer that question. I know that's super lame. Yeah, that's okay. It's pretty lame, but <laughs> not everything can be cool, bro. Yeah. I mean, I think but I think people usually know. I think I, I think you can distinguish between like be mindful or aware of like when fear is getting in the way of something that you know you should do, right? Like you just know on a deeper level. And I think when th when you know, like then you need to go for it because you will just regret the I've had that happen several times now and the regret is so terrible. Like when you know you should do something and then you don't do it. Um, Living with that fear of regrets, the worst. Oh yeah. And um, you know, there's definitely things you can do to manage regret, but uh, I think- uh, To manage regret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because regret's not productive, right? It sucks. I've definitely dwelled on things in the past before. Yeah. It's, what does that do? Yeah. Um, you know, beyond learning from them. True, true chains. Yeah, I also think something that people don't realize is like how much better they'll be at things that they love doing. A anyone who's incredibly good at what they do, it's because they love doing that thing. You know what I mean? And so I think that people underestimate how good they could get at something that they love. If you don't know, you know, if you haven't been in one of the situations where you just get obsessed with something. So something might be really intimidating, like going in and, you know, quitting your job and learning to code might be super intimidating to you. And you might think that it's like really hard to do to do that. But if you find that you absolutely love it, it's it's not really that hard because mm -hmm. you're you're able to, to to dig into it. So true. And nowadays yeah. you can find passion in anything you like. Right. As weird right. as it is, there's a community for you. Totally. Totally. Weirdos unite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All sorts of little sub uh, cultures uh, that emerge online for True. for any type of person. All right. Well, I mean, man, we got a we got a bunch of people coming over here soon, so we got to wrap this up. But okay. Dan Hunt, man, is there anything else that has just been pouring on your mind? There's I'm excited not. for you to go on your media blitz for recover. We're going to be hearing a lot about that soon. Yep. I'm excited as well. It's going to be great. Thank you Thanks for listening for to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.